The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay, so welcome to the second week of our three-week class on sutta study. It's okay if you weren't here the first week. Um... I want to start just with a little bit of an, uh, just a little introductory talking. The topic for tonight, um, as we noted last week in, in the email, is um, a life of Dhamma, living a life of Dhamma for this week. And, you know, what that means is um, how to be in the world with different aims than what the world presents to us. Um, and also, you know, how to live in community and how to, you know, how to actually live this practice. And I find it interesting that there's quite a lot in the suttas about helping people to see their way down the path, helping people to remember what's important, even though there are pressures from other directions to, uh, to not live in line with the Dharma. So the, you know... The Buddha knew that this is something that's going against the stream in a certain way. And it's always been going against the stream. It wasn't different in India 2,600 years ago compared to now in terms of it being a different way of thinking or a different way of being. So that's, um, that's what we'll look at in a, in a variety of suttas, however many we get through. Probably not all the ones that I uh, offered. Um, but I wanted to touch in now that we've had a chance to we all read a couple suttas last week in class, and I suggested some to read during the week, um, optionally, of course. But you may have had a chance to um, reflect a little bit and also see and experience how you relate to the suttas um, personally, how you relate to reading them. Basically, these texts are sacred because people make them that way. You know, these are meaningful to people and they relate to them in various ways. And there isn't just one way that people approach them. They can be used, as we talked about last time, they can be used for study, they can be used as practice aids, they can be used for worship even. And just how we hold them um, in a certain way is what makes them special and sacred and what makes them worth preserving all this time. And here we are, sitting in this room, doing it again. We're playing our little piece of uh, passing these on, as has happened for a while. So, um, I'll just mention something that I've found in reading the texts. Um, I've related to them in different ways over the years. I've been studying the texts for, I don't know, seven or eight years, uh, which is not that long, (laughs) but... Um, I, I use them in my practice and I find that I just like to read them I mean as soon as I started reading the suttas I said oh this is for me and these are really interesting and resonate somehow so I kept reading them and I find that um, for me there's a sort of a process of attunement between my mind and the text like I'll read something and you know maybe it's a story or it's a short overview of the Buddha defining some terms, that's another common type of sutta. And I may not, first I'm just reading it, you know, it's intellectual, I read it through that mode, but it still resonates, you know, somewhere deeper also. 
And then I find that over time, um, that text kind of works its way into my practice somehow. Like I'll find a phrase from it popping up in daily life or something. I'll suddenly remember, oh, um, you know, the Buddha said, uh, he'll, maybe an image is offered. Like he'll say, there's a sutta where he says, anger is like swallowing a red hot iron ball. Um, and so, you know, that's a nice image. I think I said this last time, it's a nice image, but uh, at some point you'll have a flash of anger and feel it right in the gut and realize, oh, that's what that image refers to. And so then there's sort of this link made. I'm not saying it'll happen every time with every image, but that's an example. And so then once that link has been made, I find that then... Um, I can start using that. I can anticipate, oh, if I feel a little heat in my belly, I wonder if I'm angry. And it's all this attunement. And then I go back and maybe I read the text again. And of course, there's a little, it doesn't just have that image. It's a part of a larger sutta. And then I start seeing more in the rest of the sutta. But there's kind of this resonance where what I read becomes part of my practice, which then feeds back into what I can see in the text. Um, I can't explain it very well. Um, but that's what happens, and I'm amazed and awed by this because these, first of all, these are English translations, so they're not even the original texts, but it's also stuff that was written down many centuries ago in another part of the world about how the mind works. But evidently our mind works the same way. Um, and it, I find that just amazing, that, that there could be this connection across so long. Um, the other effect, or maybe another way to encapsulate what I'm saying is that the suttas start out as looking kind of prescriptive. You know, I read them and they tell me what to do or they give instructions or they tell how something is and I think, okay, that's nice, that must, that's worth thinking about. And then over time, because of this attunement where my mind starts to resonate with the text, I start thinking after a while, no, this is actually more descriptive than prescriptive. You know, if you do the practice, you end up realizing, oh, right, this is the way to describe this experience, or this is the way to do this kind of practice. And it's it's how the mind ends up being after it has read that sutta and, followed, and resonated with it. So there's this kind of um, prescriptive, descriptive ambiguity, I find, in the teachings. So this is my own experience that I'm sharing. Um, I would be curious... Um, Whatever you felt reading the suttas is completely valid. I wonder if anybody has anything to share. It doesn't have to be of that detail, but you know, as simple as what strikes you when you read a sutta. How do you read a sutta? Do you sit down and read it from start to finish, or do you read one sentence and then pause and think, or do you read two paragraphs and then go to sleep at night and then try it again the night the next night before you go to bed? There's lots of ways. Any comments? Myself skipping some sentences. Mm-hmm. The ones that repeat? It, yeah, so some, some of the repeat, and then I realized as soon as I would do that, I would skip maybe something important. So, and I was like, oh, okay, wait, hold on. So I, I took kind of advice about uh, the essay, mm. you know, framing the suttas. It's like if you have some aversion to it, um, maybe there's something to it. Yeah, or, I thought that was interesting too. But there was also another one that I forgot what exactly. Do you find it boring? It's like it's uh-huh. okay. <laughs> so I was like, oh, yeah, a little bit of both. So I was like, okay, maybe I'll read it another time. Yeah, 
That makes perfect sense. Um, the suttas strike us in different ways, also different ways at different times. It might be boring today, but it's kind of interesting next week, you know. So uh, that can happen, or it's interesting this week and not as interesting later. That can happen too. So yeah, I think this is all just part of mindfulness practice, I think. You know, mindfulness of reading the suttas. How am I responding to this? What's this doing in my mind? And um, I get the feeling that the suttas are just going to have the, the effect that they have uh, somehow. And, you know, our thinking mind just gets in the way, as usual. <laughs> so you just read them if you like it, okay. If you don't like it, okay. But see, see what it does. And I hear what you're saying about the um, repetitive parts. As we mentioned, those, uh, those come about maybe because it was an oral tradition and also maybe because the Buddha thought it was important and just wanted to repeat again and again. It's like, you, you know, we're so attached that we have to read it again and again and again. And it just has to strike the mind 10,000 times before we say, oh, he's saying... This is not self. Oh, you know. It took me eight times, but okay. So this is great. This is great. So I'll just, um, I'll just encourage you as you continue, if you do the reading for next week and continue with the practice, you know, notice that. Notice how you relate to them and how they're affecting you over months or years or however long you engage. Okay, so... Um, let's go ahead then. I have a handout here for you. Let's pass it around. Um, that has two of the suttas that we're reading on some of the other. Yeah, we'll start with that, the one that's on the first page. And um, that's SN 5537. I'll wait for that to go around. It also has on the back um, my suggested readings for next week. Find it in the book here. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, so um, those of you who were here last week know that I'm going to ask who would like to begin reading. We're going to read this one. Um, this is Mahanama, who appears in quite a lot of speeches, actually. So who would like to begin with on one occasion? Who is willing to? Who is willing to? That's I'm willing to. Thank you. I'm glad you're willing. Please do. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling among the Sakyans at uh, some place in Nigroa Park. Okay. Then uh, Mahayama, the Sakyan, approached the Blessed One, paid homage to him, sat down on one side and said to him, Venerable Sir, in what way is one a lay follower when Mahayama uh, has gone for has gone for refuge to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha? One is a lay follower. In what way, venerable sir, is a lay follower accomplished in virtue? When Mahayama, um, a lay follower. A lay follower abstains from the destruction of life, 
from taking what is not given, from sexual misconduct, from false speech, from wines, liquor, and intoxicants that are a basis for negligence, the lay follower is, is accomplished in virtue. Okay, so we'll pause there for a moment. Thank you, by the way. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> that was great. And don't worry about the poly names. It's okay. Um, so, first of all, let's, let's just unpack this a little bit. So, he's dwelling among the Sakyans. Um, as noted last week, he, there's often a little bit of context around the situation that the Buddha is giving his teaching in. And uh, some have more and some have less. The, you know, the Majjhima Nikaya, which has a lot of stories, has more context. Samyutta Nikaya, this one, tends to be brief. Uh, so this one just says where he is, basically. So he's dwelling among the Sakins. So who are the Sakins? Does anybody, uh, does that have meaning to anyone? Would that be Buddha's clan? Yes, that's the Buddha's clan. Thank you. So um, some of you may have heard the term Shakyamuni for the Buddha. Um, uh, and that means uh, mendicant of the Sakin clan. A Muni is a beggar. Or a mendicant, yes. So the Sakyans are a Buddhist clan, or one of many Buddhist clans? It's the family, um, the the clan name in which the Buddha's family was part of. The Buddha's family. The Buddha's family. So it's a a societal thing. Um, uh, This is the Sakyan clan. It was a clan-oriented society, and I suppose there were a number of families within that. And so you know how those old family structure things go. So he's um, among his home clans people in this location. And so then it says Mahanama the Sakyan. So we're told that this is somebody from his clan. Um, Mah- Mahanama appears in a number of other suttas. He was a devoted lay follower, uh, quite accomplished. Um, uh, he reached at least the first stage of awakening. Um, which we'll see a little later. So um, he asks him, in what way is one a lay follower? And so uh, the Buddha says, when one has gone for refuge to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, then one is a lay follower. What do you think of that? Um, As a lay lay follower, as one who has gone for refuge, does that resonate for you? like to go for refuge it means that you've suffered in some way and that's the way I've always felt it to be like people who suffer you know go to that path to alleviate the suffering okay so refuge to you implies that you're you need to escape from something and find refuge yeah so that's definitely one way to see it um I don't know that this is the only definition of one who is a lay follower, but the Buddha, he asks a question, the Buddha tells him an answer. I'm not sure we would, you know, we, we may not agree in Western society that one is a, a lay Buddhist, uh, has to have specifically stated their refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, but that is a reasonable um, criterion, if you will, not that we have a strong one. At IMC, we do a refuge ceremony every two or three years. I think there should be next spring, actually. It's very nice if you're interested. Um, so there's a little class, and then at the end you do this ceremony. I found it very meaningful, actually. Okay. So then, he, um, 
he goes on and he asks, in what way is a lay follower accomplished in virtue? And he gives an answer. Um, what do you recognize from the answer that's given? Are those terms familiar to you? Somebody's nodding. Kaylin. Yeah. Yes, these are the five precepts. Um, so from the destruction of life, taking what is not given, sexual misconduct, false speech, and intoxicants. So yeah, these are the five precepts, interestingly. Okay. So this is, um, so then he goes on. Uh, who would like to read a little farther? Okay, Margie. In what way, Venerable Sir, is a lay follower accomplished in faith? Here, Mahanama, a lay follower is a person of faith. He places faith in the enlightenment of the Tagahatha. Thus, the Blessed One is an Arahant, perfectly enlightened, accomplished in true knowledge and conduct, fortunate, knower of the world, unsurpassed leader of persons to be tamed, teacher of devas and humans, the enlightened one, the blessed one. In that way, a lay follower is accomplished in faith. Okay, so we'll stop there for now. Um, So now he asks about faith, and the Buddha gives him a definition. And um, he gives these standard phrases. By the way, um, the word at the beginning is tathagata. It's a word worth learning. Okay. Uh, I know it's a hard one to say. Say it again, please. Tathagata. 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 Everything is pronounced as T. Don't be confused by the H in the middle. Okay. It's probably slightly different in correct Pali, but we say Tathagata. Yeah, and it means the one... The one thus gone is sometimes how it's translated, or it can be translated just as the one who is thus. That's what Gil's been using lately. Um, And it's a word that the Buddha uses for himself. Um, So he talks about himself as the Tathagata. Um, I think it's kind of nice. He doesn't say, I'm the great awakened person, although he does say that he has said that. (laughs) Um, He just doesn't say it often. and he just says this, you know, he's very simple. This is it. This is who I am. I'm the one who's thus. <laughs> I guess I'm smuggling. I am the one who is thus. Yeah, the one who is like this right now. Because he, you know, the Buddha is very um, steeped in not having an identity, right? And yet he has a presence, a, a self, if you will. Uh, I'll be careful saying that. Um, but by Western psychological definitions, he acts as if he has a reasonable sense of self, um, a healthy psychological ability to articulate his ideas and to set boundaries and all the things that are said. And yet he understood that um, being, you know, there's emptiness. You know, there is, there's only causes and conditions. And so it's, it's like, how would you then say, he can say I, he says I in other places. Um, but you know, how do you then describe something like that uh, in order not to make himself a fixed person? And he says, I'm the one who is thus. And right now I'm thus, and sometime later I'll be like I am then. That's how I see it, at least. Mm-hmm. I'm putting a little bit of my interpretation on. But the one who is thus, I can kind of get that as uh, a description of a presence as opposed mm-hmm. to a person. And he uses that. You know, he uses that when he's teaching. 
When he says the blessed one is an arahant, is he also referring to himself? That's or? also referring to himself. Okay. Yeah. Could it also mean others? Well, actually, let's look at this more carefully. It okay. says a lay follower is a person of faith. He places faith in the enlightenment, the Tathagata, thus. And then there's a quote. So this is what a person is saying. And so the person says the Blessed One is. So he's saying that other people call him the Blessed One. Oh, okay. In this context. Does that make sense? Yes. It's hard to decipher all those quotes within quotes, isn't it? Yes. So he's saying somebody else would say this of him. The Blessed One is blah, blah, blah. Now that list, I don't expect... I don't... I don't know that you would recognize that list um, of things, uh, but this list about uh, an arahant, perfectly enlightened, accomplished in true knowledge and conduct, etc., that is actually also a list of stock phrases, or what they're called stock phrases that are repeated about the Buddha. This is a classic description of the Buddha. Um, and it's actually chanted at Abhayagiri, for example. They, um, they chant this. And there are classic descriptions also of the Dhamma and the Sangha. They don't happen to be in this sutta. Um, but anyway, those are stock phrases. They're even repeated in other uh, Buddhist traditions, interestingly, in Zen and in um, Chan, other forms of Eastern uh, versions of this have uh, subsets or supersets of those ten qualities also. Okay, so that's just a little bit of historical background. So, so what do you think of this? What do you think of faith as being um, faith in the Buddha? Is that meaningful for us, or might we have a different idea? Or? I'm going to say this, like, faith in what he accomplished. Yes. It does say the Blessed One is, and then a bunch of stuff about him. So it has faith that he is those things. You're right, it's... Technically, it is faith in the enlightenment of the Buddha, not the Buddha himself. Also, let me just comment the word faith sometimes stops people. Um, that's the translation that Bhikkhu Bodhi uses for the word sadha. Um, but it's not exactly faith like Western. I mean, obviously, it's not the same as Western Judeo-Christian faith. That's not the context of, you know, of ancient Indian society. Um, so that word sadha includes confidence, trust. Uh, so choose, uh, Tanjef uses conviction for this word. So choose the aspect of it that resonates for you. At least that's how I teach. I think we can, there's a lot of ways to translate these Pali words. And I think I found at different times in my practice, different translations worked better for me. Like for a while, like when I started practice, I didn't like the word faith, and I preferred confidence or trust. Um, and so that's just how I read it. When I read faith in a book like this, I just said, sort of substituted in my mind, because that was what worked for me. And then interestingly, though, uh, I went through a period where faith really made sense to me. And all of a sudden I said, you know what? This is the translation of faith. That sounds right. And I liked it. It actually was... Um, meaningful for me, and I was surprised by that because I didn't like it at first. So I, uh, but I allowed that change, and you know I think I still like faith, but I'm open to all of them. But there was a period where that was really powerful for me. So I guess I just say that I just shared that so that you'll know that whatever works for you is something that's 
you know, if you, whatever resonates, use that. And if something else works later, you can use that. That's why it's nice to read different translations also. Yeah, I think that's extremely helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it um, seems like it's confidence in the enlightenment is possible, not in the particular person. Or like yes. the characteristics. Of that's a nice way of saying it. Or that there's like an end goal that's possible, in a way. Well, that is, that's how we could read it now, I think, in that um, we, you know, we don't have a living Buddha among us. Um, so it might have been different then, when the Buddha was there and could teach. I think that was a whole different thing. If you read these ten phrases, though, they, they are quite literally about the power of the Buddha. Um, that's a little bit why I highlighted that, because we may see faith differently now, faith in the possibility of enlightenment or in the potential of the human mind or something like that, or in the awareness. Some people say the Buddha is this awareness that we're cultivating. Um, and the purity, the pure form of that is the is the refuge of the Buddha. Open for interpretation. Okay, so okay, so let's go on. Um, who would like to start with this one about generosity and read to the end? There's not that many of you. You're all going to have to read at some point. Or, I'll read again. Okay, thank you. In what way, Venerable Sir, is a lay follower accomplished in generosity? Here, Mahanama, a lay follower dwells at home with a mind devoid of the stain of stinginess, freely generous, open-handed, delighting in relinquishment, one devoted to charity, delighting in giving and sharing. In that way, a lay follower is accomplished in generosity. In what way, Venerable Sir, is a lay follower accomplished in wisdom? Here, Mahanama, a lay follower is wise. He possesses wisdom directed to arising and passing away, which is noble and penetrative, leading to the complete destruction of suffering. In that way, a lay follower is accomplished in wisdom. Okay, great. Thank you. Sure. So, um, let's back up again for just uh, take a larger view for a moment. Basically, he first asks about um, how to be a lay follower. And so the Buddha says, one who's taken refuge, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, is a lay follower. Then he asks about four qualities, specifically virtue, faith, generosity, and wisdom. And the Buddha says in each case how a lay follower demonstrates these in their life. Um, you know, following the five precepts, having devotion to the Buddha, um, this one about generosity, uh, giving freely, open-handed, delighting in relinquishment, and wisdom, possessing wisdom directed to arising and passing away, etc., so it's interesting, right? He's basically, um, Mahanama has set the Buddha up with these questions to explain um, what he sees as devotion or um, practice, wise practice in a lay follower. What do these four qualities um, mean to you in your life? Are they part of your practice? Uh, for me, I would like to think they're part of my practice, but they also come out at any given time 
through my days uh-huh. with, you know. Yeah. Um, it doesn't need to be an explicit part of your practice. They're, yeah, yeah. They show up. Yeah. I mean, not always. It's sometimes, you know, just everything goes out the door. You yeah. Know? <laughs> Having a bad day or a stressful day or, you know, uh, money is tight and, oh, or whatever, you know. Yeah. Or, so, but yeah, so. So when you read this, though, does that kind of remind you of, you know, these are the qualities that, you know, he doesn't say uh, a lay follower is accomplished in playing video games. <laughs> <laughs> so then we don't go home and say, oh, that's what I need to practice, right? right? right. So <laughs> Definitely, it's a reminder. It's, it's um, And you know, it's, it's not real difficult. I mean, these are things that we can do just sitting with ourselves within. We can do this. We can practice it at a red stoplight as we're driving down the road. Um, so yeah, they are great reminders. Yeah, that would be kind of the prescriptive form. And then maybe over time, you come and read it and say, oh, this is descriptive of what happens to a person who practices, right? And they, they begin to have faith, they begin to have virtue, and that's just how it is after you've practiced for a while. As a suggestion, by the way, check that for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Um, any comments on the last? We didn't really talk about the last part on wisdom. It's an interesting definition, isn't it? Um, wisdom directed to arising and passing away, which is noble and penetrative, leading to the complete destruction of suffering. What does that phrase? What do those phrases mean to you, if anything? Yeah, you think like so, like arising and passing away. So you have sort of this perspective of the mind, mm-hmm. and sort of not <clears throat> like a non-grasping kind of way, um, and then like the complete destruction of suffering. Like the wisdom doesn't mean anything unless you can apply it, you know, to alleviating the suffering. So it's a very um, sort of. Uh, useful kind of wisdom, not just some like, you know, like some philosophical traditions are super esoteric and you can't apply them, but this is all about being applicable. Beautiful. Absolutely. Yeah. Directing it to arising and passing away, that's a perspective is the word that you used. And that's um, that's part of wise view, actually, is to notice arising and passing. And yes, this is practical. It's not wisdom that's going to be something that you gain and hold on to, and then you've got it. <laughs> it's more like, are you watching arising and passing away? Well, that's that's being wise, and that's something you do moment to moment. It's not something that you can hold on to uh, like, a, like a possession. So he's talking about actually um, quite deep wisdom there, which is interesting in that he's talking to a lay follower. Um, now, it happens that... Um, Mahanama, as I said, was quite an accomplished lay follower, and it's um, he did. There's another sutta where it's stated that the sutta took place at a time when he was a stream enterer, and I think it's possible that that's the case here also because this sutta. I have extra knowledge. <laughs> this sutta is in chapter 55 of this book, which is called the Sotapati Samyutta, which is the um, Samyutta means collection, by the way. That's why this is called this book. And so it's the collection of suttas about 
stream entry um, without gaining the first stage of awakening. And so I think it's interesting that this one is kind of stuck in here about the qualities of a lay follower. Why is that in this in this section on stream entry? Well, this last one about wisdom, um, possessing this wisdom that's uh, noble and penetrative, um, that's uh, that's strong, strong wisdom, the kind that can lead to destruction of suffering, as it says. So I think that's why it belongs in this section and why, and so this is, you know, Mahanama was known as someone who was a serious practitioner. So it's nice to have a little context sometimes around the suttas. Yeah, you look like you have a question. Well, I was wondering, was there like examples of Mahanama like meditating, like, or was it... For you lay mean, practitioners, like in, in the Pali. Did he med- I don't know like, if he meditated. Um, I, like, is that the case for mostly followers, and, or they don't? Or <laughs> that's a really good things. question. Um, yeah. Do lay followers in the suttas, is there evidence that they meditate? Um, there's not a lot that I remember um, about, say, lay followers, you know, going on retreat or... <laughs> You know, but uh, and often, you know, their uh, their devotion is in the form of making merit and supporting the monks. Merit making came a little later. Um, merit making, so really shaping one's practice around improving oneself for the next lifetime. But there are little glimpses in the suttas now of um, lay followers who were uh, said to be at various stages of awakening. Um, I can give an example. There was a, uh, a one of the biggest patrons of the Buddha was a man named Anatta Pindika, who was a banker. He was wealthy actually for much of his life, although he lost all his money at one point. But um, he he was a lay follower and was said to have um, reached, I think, even beyond the first stage of awakening, uh, out of the great merit of giving so much money to the Buddha and building so many monasteries. And there is a time where he was dying, and um, I forget who it is who comes to him. It might be Sariputta. I don't think it's the Buddha who comes and teaches him on his deathbed. And he teaches him about the seven factors of awakening, which are mental qualities that one develops and which become very strong when the mind is um, about to become liberated at any of the stages. And he is... um, and, and a lot of it is kind of meditative. You know, it says direct your mind toward these powerful mental qualities. And somebody who hadn't developed their mind wouldn't be able to follow that instruction. And he listens to this whole teaching on his deathbed, and he says, this is wonderful, I've never heard a teaching like this. So this is obviously not common to give to the lay people. And the response is, well, we don't usually tell lay people about these liberative teachings, but for you, it seemed appropriate here on your deathbed, and something like that. Um, so... You have to remember that the suttas that got preserved were preserved by the monks over time. And so probably some of the teachings to lay people have been lost, or teachings about lay people have been lost. Maybe. That's one theory. I don't know that. Um, So I I question a little bit the image of lay people that we get in the suttas because it wasn't preserved by lay people. So we don't really know. So... but I think I can say with confidence that there isn't a lot of evidence that lay people were doing a lot of sitting. Their lives just didn't really allow it. Um, Although this last one about wisdom seems to be a good mm-hmm. example of... Yeah, directed to arising and passing away. That, that is a, could be a meditative instruction. 
Uh, it doesn't have to be, but it could be. Yeah. Descriptive. Descriptive, yeah. Descriptive, right. Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah. Caleb. You know the talk that Biko Bodhi gave? Was it the fact that like the On the transcendental dependent origination, yeah. yes. So if you look at the first one was the precepts, and then it goes into like faith or confidence, then generosity, then wisdom. Like broadly speaking, it kind of follows the general trajectory of that in a way. Meaning you have precepts, so you're blameless. Okay. And the first thing in the liberation thing is confidence. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of get, well, the next the parts are like, like sukha or happiness, or which kind of come from generosity. You kind of develop this loving kindness light quality and then you get wisdom. This is lovely. I, I mean, have, it's not exact. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's not exact, but it's a beautiful... It's kind of um, close. Yeah, I and mean, I'm sure that the order that these are presented in is not uh, random. Uh, wisdom is at the end. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting, often generosity is at the beginning, but here he has uh, ethics at the beginning. Usually it's generosity and then virtue. But I, I like the way you uh, describe that in saying that the generosity goes with the generation of happiness, which is a condition usually needed to further the development of the mind in order to, for it to have enough concentration to, uh, to have insight. That's great. Thank you. I love that. I'd never thought of that. All right. Um, there's obviously more that could be done and said with any sutta, but shall we go on to... Um, to another one. So now we have a little bit of a choice. Um, how many people have access to the uh, Dhammapada offering? Did anybody have it? Does anyone have it printed out? And we have two, and I have, but I need one. So, um, and do you, is that online? Um, it is, yeah. Okay, great. Let's do the Dhammapada one, because it's such a nice contrast. So we're looking at chapter 6 in the Dhammapada. Is it regarded as a sutta? Yeah. Well, uh, no, it's a set of verses. It's, um, yeah. But it's in the Sutta Pitaka, so yes. So among the six of you, there are three devices that have it. Um, Can you find a way to share two, two, and two? We need people to be looking at chapter 6 in the Dhammapada. Okay. Yes, and if you can get it on, on a phone, that's totally fine. No. For those of you who don't have it memorized, of course, I, I figured you would by now. There's a few phrases in one translation that are better than the other. It's true. Oh, so you read both translations, too. Yeah, there's a few Boy, there's, Oh, there's so many translations of the Dhammapada. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter which one you're looking at. And so when you hear people reading and it doesn't quite match what's on your page, just listen. This is going to be fun. This is going to be fun. So this is the chapter called The Sage. Okay? The Wise? The Sage. Oh, The Wise. The Wise. It's called The Wise. Okay. What's it called in there? The Wise Man. The Wise Man. Okay, see, we've already got differences. You can take your pick. Sage, Wise, or Wise Man. Um... I'll start us out, just so this is um, Gill's translation. Like someone pointing to treasure is the wise person who sees your faults and points them out. Associate with such a sage. Good will come of it, not bad, if you associate with one such as this. 
Let one such as this advise you, instruct you, and restrain you from rude behavior. Such a person is pleasing to good people, but displeasing to the bad. Okay, so I'll stop there. So this is, um, what is this saying, basically? I know your translations are different, but... This is verse. So let's just decipher the English, regular English meaning of that. Kind of want a teacher who points out your faults so you can learn from it in a way? Yeah. Yeah. Associate with someone who's wise, and that person is someone who's willing to tell you what's wrong with you. (laughs) 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 That's a little blunt way to say it, but... um, and then it's, it's interesting at the end, it says, such a person is pleasing to good people, but displeasing to the bad, or the equivalent of what you have in there. Um, so it's a little bit a mark of your wisdom, if you're willing to associate with someone who might point out to you where you're addicted or where you're clinging. Um, but if, you know, if you're not interested in that, then you're just going to look for people who confirm your habits, basically. I'm interpreting a little bit, but that's my interpretation of what it says. Basically, it says associate with the wise. Lots and lots of teachings in the suttas will tell you your friends matter. (laughs) Associate with the right people. Okay, who would like to read, um, or who is willing to read, thank you for that, Nick. Um, Who is willing to read the next um, few stanzas? Okay, go ahead. And they're different, right? What what, what translation do you have? Penguin Classic. Penguin classics? Yeah. Okay. This is the other assumption. Hath not for friends those whose soul is ugly, go not with men who hath an evil soul. Hath for friends those whose soul is beautiful, go with men whose soul is good. Uh, he who drinks of the waters of truth, he rests in joy with mind serene. The wise find their delight in the Dhamma, the truth revealed by the great. Okay, I'll stop there. I don't know about this evil soul kind of thing. (laughs) I've never heard soul as a translation from this, but that's okay. Um, So basically, this is the flip side, right? It says don't associate with people who don't possess the path, who are not virtuous, basically. And then, um, what about the fourth stanza you said drinks from the waters of truth I kind of like that this one says drinks in the Dhamma (laughs) (laughs) any comments on that one Maybe like you get refreshed when you drink water I don't know you ever drink water when you're really thirsty yeah it just gives us an image to me it's an image of um, you know of the goodness of uh, associating with the Dhamma and with the wise. Okay, then we have um, some lovely images coming next. Is someone willing to read the next few stanzas? Yeah, irrig- starts with irrigators. Okay, thanks. Uh, irrigators guide the water, fletchers shape the arrow shaft, carpenters shape the wood. The wise control themselves. As a single slab of rock will budge in the wind, so the wise are not moved by praise, by blame. Like a deep lake, clear, unruffled, and calm, so the wise become clear, 
calm on hearing the words of the Dhamma. Okay, great. Why that split paragraph? Oh, that's not in your issues. Yeah, he formats it. Oh, you have some formatting issues. Oh, in oh well, that's no, why. He does it on purpose. Oh, okay. okay. It's kind of like poetry. Yeah. Formats it. Okay. I don't know about the formatting. Um, um, yeah. Uh, I, it may be in the original, and then people or people are interpreting it in certain ways. I'm not sure. I like these images, personally. Um, the one about... Um, the first one about the irrigators, the Fletchers, and the carpenters, um, and then sages tame themselves, right? Mm-hmm. It, it points um, uh, to the craft, the craftsmanship of the Dharma. And one way of seeing it is that, you know, people at this time, remember most people were craftsmen of various kinds, or they learned skills. Um, he's speaking to people who would understand these images of our life is about learning to do something well. And then he says, this is about learning to tame yourself in the same way. Tame the mind, shape the mind, um, guide the mind. I think it's uh, quite a nice image. And then he gives some other examples that are also image-related. Like a massive rock is not moved by the wind, so a wise person is not moved by praise or blame. These are easy to understand, right? And then as a deep lake is clear and undisturbed, a sage becomes clear upon hearing the Dharma. Um, very poetic. It's and also... Poet. Yeah? Like you can, it's a learned skill, just like you can yeah. craftsman. The whole practice is just like a skill. Yeah, he's not saying you're either good at it or you're not. That's yeah. it. <laughs> you know, it's like you can, you can learn it. Um, these are also examples of those types of images where I read them and I think, oh, these are very nice, and then later um, I may have a deeper understanding of why these particular images were chosen. Okay. Um, someone willing to go on? Virtuous people? Okay, go ahead, Alex. Um, The good renounce attachment for everything. The virtuous do not prattle with a yearning for pleasures. The wise show no elation or depression when touched by happiness or sorrow. He is indeed virtuous, wise, and righteous, who neither for his own sake nor for the sake of another does any wrong who does not crave for sons, wealth, or kingdom, and does not desire success by unjust means. Mm. Nice. Any comments? Doesn't have to be. We're kind of breaking this up. All right, so we can go on. I'll do the next one if you want. Few are the people who reach the other shore... Many are the people who run about on this shore. But those who are in accord with the Dharma, with the well-taught Dharma, will go beyond the realm of death so hard to cross. Giving up dark ways, sages cultivate the bright. They go from home to homelessness, to the solitude so hard to enjoy. There they should seek delight, abandoning sensual pleasures, having nothing, 
Sages should cleanse themselves of what defiles the mind. Those who fully cultivate the factors of awakening give up grasping, enjoy non-clinging, and have destroyed the toxins are luminous and completely liberated in this life. Are there particular words or phrases that stand out? Not necessarily in what I read, and you know, I know you have different words. And what, another way to read these is just to see what grabs your heart, you know, what, is, what feels meaningful to you in this. Death so hard to cross. Yeah, the deathless. What does that mean to you? I know you may not have words. <laughs> uh, not being subject to not the causes of death, but I guess meant. Uh, I guess yeah, the desire to describe. Um, I mean, it's, it's essentially nirvana. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually quite beautiful that, that, that it just has meaning to you without words. Yeah. It's worth finding phrases like that in the suttas that are inspirational and that you can kind of just carry with you. Um, and they may change over time, but I, I think that's really lovely. So it ends with a series of inspirational kinds of Stanzas, you know, inviting us to imagine. Oh, this is this is what he's aiming toward. This is the wise person or the sage. Um, and you can see that at least I can feel in reading this. This is not what's advertised on TV. You know? <laughs> this is like a different kind of life, right? <laughs> so, um, and one that uh, one that's going to take a little finding, you know, take a little effort to get to, but this is kind of the mystical, you know, the mystical realm of uh, seeing things differently. Well, I think he does a good job of juxtaposing the the unjust means, like sons, wealth, kingdom, uh-huh. success, like that resonated with me from like, those are similar to like those current values in our society. Right. And then you say that's not kind of the spiritual purity that you're looking for. What you need is to go on retreat to cleanse yourself from these things and just take that layer of like socialization, just kind of get rid of it and then get to that purity that we innately have. It's interesting that you said innately have. Um, that's, first of all, yes, he's saying don't get stuck on the surface with the sons and the kings and the barn animals and whatever else you might <laughs> value. Um, you know, at the surface level, and to go underneath and, you know, give up all those, give up home and go to homelessness. Um, does it actually say that these things are innate to us? No, but that's, like, what I've ascertained from, like, some of my studies that we have, like, like, the insight that we gain is because we strip away all these layers yeah, I think I think that's a reasonable. Um, that is an interpret. Uh, what should I say? Those are images that are given frequently in other teachings. 
I, the reason I'm, I'm making a point about this is that he, there is a very a slight hint of it at the end, this part about those who have given up all these things, destroyed the toxins, are luminous. Um, and for my mind, uh, what that it's maybe not so evident from this particular stanza, but there's another sutta where the um, Buddha says that, uh, he says, monks, this mind is luminous, uh, except for defilements that visit. And so it's sort of, there are little hints in our tradition that there's this idea of a pure or luminous mind and everything that obscures it is just a visitor, just something that's coming in. Um, but a lot of the images are a little bit more along the lines of what he says, of effortful development, you know, cleanse yourself, it even says here, cleanse yourself of what defiles the mind, etc. It will go beyond the realm of death, so hard to cross. Sages cultivate the bright, and so forth. Um, So there's a lot of images of needing to develop and work. Um, I think these are kind of two sides of the same coin, two sides of the same hand. Different traditions emphasize one more or the other. This might be something to be aware of as you're reading the suttas. Is he implying that there's something already there and we're uncovering it, or is this something that is developed? It might be, you know, it's not that those images are necessarily incompatible, but they're sometimes described in different ways. It's just barely hinted at in this. You have to have some imagination. <laughs> I, I added a little bit to put that teaching in. It's interesting how strong the language is. It is strong, yeah. Defilement, renunciation, relinquishment. These are very, yeah, absolutely very strong images. Usually you would think like some traditions, like you're already perfect as you are, like you don't really need it too much in a way, and that kind of goes against that a little bit. Yeah, um, no, I'm glad you picked that up. That's a little bit what I was saying. Yeah. So the Buddha in the early texts is very much a, a developer, a um, striver, if you will, in most cases, not every case, but it is different from other spiritual teachings, especially, by the way, from spiritual teachings that are popular in California in the 21st <laughs> century that are about find your true nature, relax into you know, your, your real self, um, let go into ease and peace. Now that's actually, the teachings like that are a little bit more what we need sometimes because we're pretty driven in this society, driven towards the wrong things, of course. But it helps before we can maybe drive, if you will, toward these kinds of things, we need to stop and let go of some of that uh, drivenness for the the, our equivalent of the farm animals and the sons and the wealth and so forth. Um, so there are a lot of teachings. Gill very much emphasizes relaxation, letting go, uh, finding ease, developing happiness in the mind. I'm all for teachings like that. I think we need it here in the West. But be aware that the original texts don't always have that language in them. And then you just, you know, that's how it is. There's a lot of teachings. This, but these are the original texts that, that um, are there. And we learn what works for us, what doesn't, how we can relate to them. Okay, good. Any other comments on this one? We did it pretty fast, of course. But um, anything else strike you? 
I just think like it's both like you talked about like like the innateness and then also the practice. Mm-hmm. Like, I just yeah. think like by living in a society like this or like that one perhaps like you just internalize so many things unconsciously and it's not anybody's fault. It's yeah. just the process of living that's what happens and you have to try to consciously reverse these things and that's why it takes patience, you know, and this practice is about that in a lot of ways. Beautifully said. That's exactly right. Effort is, is going to be necessary because we've been conditioned um, to be different than that. That's why we have to practice. Um, and then in the end, effort falls away. But there is effort to get to the point where effort falls away. Yeah. Okay. Um, we have time to do another one, just maybe start another one at least. Um, I had also suggested... Boy, this is going to be a different thing. I had also suggested this one, um, AN3121, which is on the back of your sheet. That's why I'm saying it. Um, On purity. (laughs) There's a word right there that we might need to unpack. I'll just use this one. So we've seen... um, Actually, let's just step back for a moment. The first teaching that we did in the Samyutta was about the ideal qualities of a lay follower, right? About this um, virtue and faith and generosity and wisdom and taking refuge. And then this, um, this one in the Dhammapada had a very different flavor, at least to me it does. It's about the sort of mystical inner development that someone who's a sage does. It, the implication is pretty strong in here that this person would be a renunciate, um, would not be living as part of regular society, so not really a householder. But um, the, the qualities, and so it has a different flavor, right? It has this kind of give up the world, um, follow a different path, whereas this, was, this one to Mahanama was a little bit more about in the world, this is how you, know, how you develop these superior qualities, right? Those are a little bit different. Um, now we're going to look at another one that's directed at monks specifically and not so much the wandering individual sage although maybe um, but also not a lay person so um, we're on the back side of that sheet that I handed out and this sutta is called purity (laughs) you can see how that word sits for you right away. Um, Is anyone willing to read the beginning of this one? Okay, thank you. Because there are three, there are these three purities. What three? Bodily purity, verbal purity, and mental purity. And what is bodily purity? Here, Bhikkhu abstains from the destruction of life, from taking what is not given, and from sexual uh, activity. This is called bodily purity. And what is verbal purity? Here, Bhikkhu abstains from false speech, from divisive speech, from harsh speech, and from idle chatter. This is called verbal purity. And what is mental purity? Here, when there is sensual desire in him, Bhikkhu understands, there is sensual desire in me, or when there is no central desire in him, he understands there is no central desire in me. And he also understands how unarisen central desire arises, 
how arisen sensual desire is abandoned and how abandoned sensual desire does not arise again in the future. Okay, well, we'll pause there. It goes on to uh, other qualities that where he's going to do this same kind of cultivation, and we'll hopefully have time to wrap that up in the end. But this is another one of these suttas where the Buddha is defining things. You notice this is similar to Mahanama, right? He said, what is faith in a lay follower? And the Buddha says, oh, and a lay follower has faith. He's blah, 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 and he goes on. And so... Um, these are like, uh, these are again, it's kind of a setup. This time he's asking his own questions and answering them. Um, what is bodily purity? Here, Bhikkhu abstains from the scratching of life, from taking what is not given, and from sexual activity. So, do these sound familiar? Again, these are the first three precepts. There's, one of them is different, right? Uh, for, for monks, the third precept says abstaining from sexual activity, not from sexual misconduct. So for lay people, it's different. It's understood that lay people may have intimate relations, but monks do not. This is a celibate tradition. And then the fourth precept, which for lay people is just abstaining from false speech, is um, expanded in this sutta to be a statement about verbal purity. Right, and it has four components: false speech, divisive speech, harsh speech, and idle chatter. Right, so it's, this is kind of the fourth precept, also, um, which is in here called verbal purity. <laughs> um, and then he goes on to mental purity. So basically, he's talking about the three realms of activity: body, speech, and mind. Right, um, and here. Um, it might have gone by a little bit quickly because the language is a little... This is typical sutta language, by the way. But basically it says when there is, in this case, sensual desire is the first thing that's chosen. And he understands there is sensual desire in me, or when there is no sensual desire, he understands there is no sensual desire. So interestingly, um, it's about understanding right? It's not about, um, it doesn't say when there's sensual desire in him, the bhikkhu crushes the sensual desire and does not act upon it, which might be implied, but I don't know about the crushing, but you know, it's implied that you don't act on it. But it, all it actually says is he understands whether it's there or whether it's not. He doesn't judge it as bad, necessarily. Isn't that interesting? The mental purity is actually to be able to see it. Um, it's a little bit subtle Uh, and then it goes on to say he also understands how now this is classic pseudo language unarisen sensual desire arises arisen sensual desire is abandoned and abandoned sensual desire does not arise again in the future so sorry about that language but is it clear what that means So he understands how it comes about if it's not there. He understands how it can be abandoned if it is there. And he understands how it can be prevented. These are three of the four components of right effort, right? So, but it's about the understanding. But it's about, you know, uh, what does right effort say? It says, prevent unwholesome states from arising, um, abandon ones that have arisen, and then there are positive ones. Develop the ones that uh, 
develop positive ones and cult and maintain them when they're there. Yeah. So these are, um, and this is all about sensual desire, which is the first of the five hindrances, right? And then the other ones that it goes on to, we haven't read this yet, but ill will, dullness and drowsiness, restlessness and remorse, and doubt, those are the other four of the five hindrances. I know this may sound like a lot of technical speak. Uh, I'm just throwing it out there for you. But um, this is how suttas are kind of constructed, if you will, is that these... Do you, you're recognizing, I think, through this, some of these lists, right? The, we've seen the list of the five, well, in this case, four of the five precepts. And then also the five hindrances are the basis for each of these teachings. And then in each one, he talks about seeing it and also understanding how it arises and passes. Um, the, this set of seeing whether things arise and pass and whether they're there is repeated, by the way, in the Satipatthana Sutta. So, for um, not to completely snow you under with uh, all the intricate references that there are in here, and I may not even know what all of them are, I want to highlight for you how tightly interconnected the different suttas are. The teachings are wrapped up together where in ways that um, you don't need to know to read them, actually. You can totally appreciate the sutta just reading it, but what will happen is when you read a bunch of other ones, you'll start to see, oh, you know what, I've heard that before. Where have I heard that? Oh, there it is. Um, this is that same list, and here it is appearing again. So I'm, I'm telling you this not to snow you under or like show how many references I know or expect that you would have picked that up. It's to point out that uh, like like a pre-warning. If you keep reading the suttas, this will keep happening. So keep your ears out for this. It's it's fun, actually. It's so much fun to read a sutta and say, oh, that's just like this other one. And then you go back and you read it and you say, ah, and you link them together in your mind. I guess I can, you're again seeing my passion for the suttas. This is what I like to do. You may not find that interesting at all. <laughs> but this is how I read them and it's something that has come out for me in reading them. Um, but I'll, I'll stop talking and ask, um, you know, what, what, what resonates in this for you, if anything? It's a fairly dry sutta, but um, what do you see in it? Yeah, Ethan. I just have, like, so divisive speech. Yeah. Is that, like, trying to bring people, like, away from each other? Yes, it means there's a description of it in other suttas. It's, it's unpacked a little bit more, and it says... Telling things here about those people over there with the purpose of dividing them, or telling people over there about these people here with the purpose of dividing them. So yeah, it's basically oh speaking behind people's back, yeah. you know. Um, the other thing was just abandoned sensual desire does not arise again in the future. Was uh-huh. he saying that like if you don't act on certain desires they'll just go away and they won't arise again or or what it's okay let's see what the language says it says he understands how abandoned sensual desire does not arise again in the future so the i what i read in that the implication is that he has seen some sensual desire and he did his job he noticed that it was present in his mind and then somehow he abandoned it that part is not unpacked 
in this particular sutta. It's kind of compact. But assume that somehow uh, he let go of that sensual desire. So the interest in pizza arose. This is not going to be for an Indian monk. but <laughs> um, And then somehow he let go of it and realized, oh, I don't really care about that. Um, he has an understanding somehow from that process of how he can prevent um, the desire for pizza arising again in the future. It may not be obvious uh, the first time, and the first time it happens, it might just feel like, well, that went away, I don't really know why. So the implication might be that he has to watch for a while, and then after a while he starts to understand, oh, you know, um, if I let go in a certain way, um, like if I let go by suppression and I say, oh, I'm so evil, I should not have thought of pizza, um, that's bad, the Buddha says I shouldn't have that, it may go away for a while, but then it's probably going to come back, right? Because that wasn't really abandoned in a clean way. I'm adding interpretation right now, but this is one way of seeing it. Um, but he understands that if he lets go, for example, more out of wisdom, like he realizes, you know what? Last week I ate nine pieces of pizza and I felt so sick. Um, pizza isn't really going to make me happy. And so he understands pizza, I may, the desire for pizza has arisen, yes, that's true, but I know that it doesn't really make me happy, um, so it's, it's just not worth paying attention to. And so he abandons it by, you know, out of wisdom, out of understanding that it's not, it's not actually satisfactory. <laughs> so, and then it's much less likely that it's going to come back, because he understood why he didn't need that pizza. That so it was a yeah, so he, he yeah it's it, who knows why these things are I have no idea why thoughts come certain thoughts come into my mind at certain times it's I don't know where they come from um, but I hopefully if I'm mindful enough I have some wisdom about which ones are uh, worth paying attention to and which ones aren't so the thought about the pizza if I'm mindful enough I can say eh let that one go by and just go back to what I'm doing. Even if he's, like, genuinely hungry, like, he could... Well, that might be more challenging. Yeah, then he may need a different um, a different reflection. Like, I'm a monk, and my food comes from what people give to me, and if nobody gives me pizza today, I'm going to be unhappy. Why don't I instead focus on gratitude for the generosity of the people who feed me and not worry about whether they give me pizza or something else? So that's another reflection he could do that might be a wise way of abandoning that, even if he was genuinely hungry at that moment. I'm just making this up, but does that kind of make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just it reminds me of, yeah. like, when the Buddha was... I don't know if you believe this, but he was horny when he was under the Bodhi tree, and he thought about all the different, like, se- sexual desires and stuff. Um, well, it, is it is said... in accordance with your tradition... Well, it is said that um, there are many stories of the Buddha, of course, and of his awakening. One of them includes his being attacked by Mara, um, you know, who is the the tempter, basically. And it's said that he tempted him with everything, including his three beautiful daughters who came and danced before the Buddha and, you know, took off their clothing and so forth. And, the, you know, the Buddha definitely, you know, he was a 28-year-old man. <laughs> So he definitely had to have a lot of mindfulness to not fall into that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that would be a pretty extreme version of what he's talking about in the sutta, but he's saying if with you know, mental purity means being able to not be 
drawn into that. You know, and then Mara teased him and taunted him and attacked him and did all the things that would generate anger. Didn't go for that either, and so forth. Yeah. I don't know if we're all up to that, but <laughs> that was apparently what happened to the Buddha. <laughs> Okay, so um, this is a pretty, uh, this last one that we've read is again different in character from the other two, right? This is a pretty strong teaching given to monastics about how they should conduct their bodily, mental, verbal and mental uh, practice, basically. And it's um, a pretty high bar. (laughs) So, you know, to simply know that there's sensual desire or not. That's really hard. We get sucked into sensual desire all the time, you know? And the same for ill will and so forth. And then having all this understanding about how it arises and how it can be abandoned and how it doesn't arise again, that's detailed practice to start looking at causation like that. So, um, you know, I would say this is kind of the graduate school approach of... You know, this is, he says, this is what you really need to do um, about, you know, living in a different way. And this is not at all supported by society, so living with different values. It ends with this nice little verse, pure in body, pure in speech, pure in mind, without taints. They call the pure one, accomplished in purity, one who has washed away evil. (laughs) So this is very, you know, this is very... Uh, rigorous, shall we say. So I don't think we have time, unfortunately, to do the fourth one that I recommended, which was MN48, the Kosambians, but um, that's a nice one. It has embedded in it um, uh, the six principles of cordiality, which are ways of living in community, uh, which are also very relevant for family life or Work life, although not everyone's going to be following them. Yes, that's the disputing monks. Um, uh, It's one of my favorite ones recently, so I've been teaching it a lot. Uh, Yeah, so you you might have a look at that if you're interested. But let me just mention what's up for next week. Next week, our um, topic. So we had originally the the path is what we talked about last week. Last week, the the path of training, uh, the life of training that the Buddha taught. And then this week we looked at living a life of Dhamma. How does one live in this way that he's recommending, whether as a layperson or as a monk? And we saw examples of both. Next week we're going to look at meditation and analysis of the mind, which is a whole other category of suttas that the Buddha offered. And I've given four suggestions for um, what to look at, um, two from the Samyutta Nikaya and two from the Majjhima Nikaya. And I I would... um, recommend looking at those ahead of time. They're not it's not huge amount of reading, although the Satipatthana is pretty long, but I'm guessing some of you may have seen something of that before. Um, and actually twelve twenty three, the Upanisa Sutta, that's the one that you talked about, Galen. That's what um that's what uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi taught. It's one of my favorite suttas also, so I recommended that one. Um, yeah, so have a look at these, if you will. And I think they're all online. And we'll try to go over those next week. 
And then I put a couple bonuses, but um, we won't have a chance to talk about them. One is from the Terigata, the Enlightenment poem of Patachara, and the super bonus, which you're really going to kill me for, I put on the Brahmachala Sutta DN1. Um, that has 63 wrong views, the Buddha explains. But there's a whole bunch of stuff around that. It's a long, long sutta. Um, but if you have the stomach for it. And then I offered a couple of additional resources for study. There's, uh, you know, know about access to insight now. Um, and there's also one called suttacentral.net, which is uh, interesting. I mean, it has suttas on it also. You can just go and read those. But I like it because it has, um, some of them are in Pali. I believe it has the Pali for some of them. And it also has their parallels in um, other languages. So this, you know, these suttas were around in ancient India, right? They were first written down, we talked about last time, in the first part of the common era in India, mostly Sri Lanka, I think. Um, and then it traveled out you know, to other places and eventually made it to Southeast Asia and eventually made it to the Polytech Society and to Bhikkhu Bodhi and, you know, Westerners who wrote them in English. But you can imagine that wasn't the only route it took. They were sent to China, to Tibet, other places. And so we've actually now found Chinese translations of these early texts, for example, that wandered into China somewhere, got translated into Chinese, just like we've got them in English. And uh, you can read the same sutta. Um, but it's not quite the same, <laughs> interestingly. You know, there were little transliterations. There, It may have been a different version, like from a different school in India that ended up being translated into the Chinese version. And Bhikkhu Analio has done amazing work in looking at the Chinese parallels of some of, some of the Pali canon. And it's really interesting. You can learn things from which different words are used, what stuff has been added or dropped. I don't... You know, we're not going to go into any of that in this class, but I just, I just want to, your knowledge to encompass the awareness that you know, the texts that we have, um, there are different versions of them out there, and we're starting to learn we're really at the beginning of this early Buddhism study. Um, what we're doing now is very early scholarship in this area, but it's so interesting. Um, so if you're interested, you might want to go and read a few Chinese parallels translated into English, of course, so you can read them and just hear the different versions of them if, it, if you have a scholarly bent. If you don't, forget it. This is, a, this is a class about sutta study for practice. But I'll just throw that out in case anybody has the seed within them. And then you can also um, read the text in Pali using this digital Pali reader. Um, I can tell you more about that if you want but I think I won't take time right now. Are there any final comments? There's another question. So it says yeah. Tibetan. Yeah. Um, which of the um, texts do they read in the Tibetan form of Buddhism? Oh, I see. I'm glad you asked that because um, what, this, what that sentence refers to on your handout is the Pali texts that have been translated into Tibetan. Um, so that is actually, none, none of these texts that we're reading are used commonly in the Tibetan tradition, you know, which has its own text. That's a Vajrayana came from Mahayana. Um, they have uh, a whole set of their own uh, teachings, but we have found preserved translations of these original texts in Tibetan uh, by people who brought them there much earlier, you know, 
And so those are, they're yet different from the Tibetan texts themselves. I can only read them when they're translated back into English. <laughs> so, uh, I, but I, I don't think there are very many of them. But I, was, I found all of the languages I have listed here, Sanskrit, Chinese, and Tibetan, I found on suttacentral.net. I, I, and I'm not enough of a scholar to answer your question in detail about uh, which ones of these have been translated and so forth. Nor do I know enough about Tibetan Buddhism to be sure what exactly all the texts that they read are. Sorry. <laughs> but I'm glad you're asking because um, I'm just getting interested in this stuff, um, in this wider circle of the text myself, and so I'm um, having fun educating myself about what is where and when it all happened and that. Because like you said, it doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? No, none of this happened in a vacuum. You know, it was... And, you know, who, who paid for that translation to be done? Some king somewhere, some wealthy patron sponsored a scholar to do it, and did that influence what they wrote? And, you know, I'm, of course, stirring things up here. I don't know when any, whether any of that is true, but you know, th- there were cultural influences over time as to what got preserved, um, what got changed and added, and so forth. One of the texts that we have, uh, one of the Chinese parallels, has an introduction to it that explains that it was translated into Chinese during a war. <laughs> you know, it just says, I'm sorry, it's called the Akotaraga Agama. And, it, uh, and so the introdu- basically they're apologizing, I don't know if they're literally apologizing, but they explain that the conditions at the time was, we were pulling all these texts together and putting them into Chinese, but there was this war going on, and so... You know, I'm glad that they said that and we understood that because then we can read the text and say, okay, we can take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. These were not people just sitting relaxed in some, <laughs> you know, university atmosphere somewhere, well supported and well fed. And so, you know, it's a little more fragmentary and some there are more differences and so forth. But, you know, so who knows how this stuff got to us? Yeah, it's fascinating. And I'm so grateful. I mean, imagine the people caring about it so much so that during a war they're madly translating stuff. They think it's so important. Who knows what, what blood and sacrifice went into getting these texts to us. I feel very grateful yeah. in whatever form they're in. Okay, so thank you. May you have lovely study this coming week, and I hope to see you next week for our third and final class.